striking the balance between common sense and legal reasoning. Uh, for that title implies, uh, does it not, implies at least that there is a divergence between legal reasoning and the application of common sense to perennial uh, legal problems. As a judge, one likes to believe, or perhaps to delude oneself, uh, that uh, if common sense doesn't infuse uh, legal reasoning, it at least provides a backdrop uh, as to how judicial decisions are reached. Uh, and therefore, right at the very outset, I'd propose an adjustment to the title of the, this evening's talk, not striking a balance uh, between common sense and legal reasoning, more the enrichment of legal reasoning by keeping in mind common sense. The judicial function conventionally demands legal analysis that can frequently be fairly arid. Uh, the unpicking of uh, precedents, the identification of principle, and the interpretation of frequently abstruse statutory provisions. But in my view, and I confess that this is perhaps a personal view, there can be no doubt that when the opportunity arises, it should be leavened, that is, the judicial function should be leavened with a healthy dose of realism or common sense. The need to stand back from a contemplated outcome and to ask oneself the question, does this accord with the reality? arises more often uh, than many uh, might imagine. Uh, of course, that's the excuse that I proffer uh, when <laughs> it's brought up that I am the most frequent dissenter in the Supreme Court. <laughs> but even I must acknowledge that there is no monopoly of wisdom uh, on what may be said to constitute common sense, and that what to some may appear entirely sensible will to others seem utterly outlandish. So common sense as a check or a verifier for the correctness of a legal outcome is to be handled with care and circumspection. Now, the exercise of deciding what the common sense answer is arises in a fairly stark way in the uh, law of defamation. And I'm going to be talking principally about uh, a recent case that came before us in the Supreme Court about defamation. But in particular, it is directly relevant to the question of the meaning of the words said to constitute the alleged defamation. In the days when uh, defamation actions were tried by a judge and jury, the question of what the alleged libelous or slanderous words meant was determined by the jury. Uh, that determination, of course, occurred after appropriate direction from the judge. Uh, what happened then was that the judge would determine the various uh, meanings which the, court, uh, the words were capable of bearing, and he would then put those to the jury uh, who would decide 
on the single correct meaning to be attributed to the statement. And in particular, the task for the jury was to decide what the ordinary reasonable reader, and that rubric will appear a number of times during this evening's reading, what the ordinary reasonable reader would understand from the words that had been used. After the 2013 Defamation Act abolished, for the most part, trial by jury for defamation cases, that task of deciding the single meaning passed to the judge. And central to the exercise of the choice of a single meaning was to discard any other possible meanings. And when one reflects upon it, that is, in one sense at least, counterintuitive. For the variety of meanings that might be given to a controversial statement could easily be as many as the number of people who read it. Now, that observation is essentially incidental to the main purpose of this evening's talk. It's no part of my mission this evening, well, it's no part of my principal mission this evening uh, to question that well-established position. What I am concerned about is the exercise that a trial judge must undertake in order to come up with that single meaning. As I've said, that should reflect what the ordinary reasonable reader would understand the words to mean. And that means not less than that the judge must place himself or herself in the position of the notional ordinary reader. And that, to my mind, presents a not inconsiderable challenge, especially when one is dealing with the type of publication involved in the question that will predominate in my talk this evening. And that case was, as I've said, a recent decision in the Supreme Court it was the case of Stocker against Stocker. And it came before the Supreme Court uh, earlier this year. It was a case which in some respects was magnificently mundane, uh, but which in other aspects was really quite remarkable, at least uh, to my somewhat naive mind, it was quite remarkable. By way of very uh, general background, Mr and Mrs. Stocker had been married for some time, and towards the end of that uh, marriage, uh, their relationship was um, decidedly disharmonious, I think is probably the most euphemistic way of putting it. Uh, so first, uh, the mundanity. On the 23rd of March, 2003, Mrs. Stocker was pinning up her husband's trousers in order to shorten them. And he had stood on a chair or stool for this um, domestic um, episode to take place. And perhaps inevitably, she pricked his leg with a pin. And not entirely unsurprisingly, I suppose, an altercation ensued. And Mrs. Stocker alleged that her husband had placed his hands around her neck and gripped her throat tightly. 
The police were called, uh, and some two hours uh, after the incident, when they arrived, they found that red marks were still present on Mrs. Stocker's neck. Well, so far, so mundane. Next, the remarkable. Uh, after his divorce from his wife, Mr. Stocker began a relationship with uh, a young woman called Ms. Bly. And remarkably, uh, at least it is to me, it may not be to this audience, Ms. Bly accepted a Facebook friend request from Mrs. Stocker. <laughs> and uh, in a public comment on one of Ms. Bly's status, uh, status updates, Mrs. Stocker said that her husband had tried to strangle her. Now, tried to strangle, what does that mean? In fact, that's not the relevant question at all. The correct question is, what is the single meaning that an ordinary reasonable reader would take from that statement? And expressed in that way, one can immediately see the essential artificiality of the exercise. Ordinary reasonable readers might differ wildly in their estimation of what the words might mean. But the single meaning rule, as a, a relic, as I've said, of jury trials, remains deeply embedded in defamation jurisprudence. And that requires the trial judge to come up with a single meaning, whether or not he or she feels that any of a number of meanings might occur to an ordinary uh, reader and whether or not each of those could be considered to be reasonable. Now, I've disavowed already any part of my task to seek to undermine the single meaning rule, but I can't forbear uh, from at least acknowledging its existence and adverting, I hope, reasonably mildly to the incongruity of the rule and the challenge which it presents uh, to trial judges. I think, as we shall see, it played no small part in the outcome in the Stalker case at first instance. Mr. Stalker issued proceedings against his former wife, alleging defamation as a result of this Facebook post. He forewent any claim for damages, but success for him in the contested proceedings carried a heavy penalty for Mrs. Stocker in terms of costs. So there was a lot at stake for both when the case went to trial. In advance of the hearing, the judge received representations on, on what meaning should be attributed to the words he tried to strangle me. After receiving those, in search of the single meaning of the principal defamation, that was the principal defamation he tried to strangle me, uh, the judge then had resort to the Oxford English Dictionary's definition of the verb to strangle. Uh, looking at um, dictionary definitions in other contexts um, may still be regarded as not strictly forbidden in all circumstances. 
But this evening I question whether it has any role to play in uh, defamation cases. The case went to the Court of Appeal and uh, Lady Justice Sharp uh, delivered uh, the uh, principal judgment. And as she observed, the use of dictionaries does not form part of the process of determining the natural and ordinary meaning of words because what matters is the impression conveyed by the words uh, to the ordinary reader when they are read. And it is this that the judge must identify. And I have absolutely no quarrel at all with that. But notwithstanding that statement, the Court of Appeal considered that the trial judge had merely used the dictionary definitions as a check and no more. Now, as it happens, we in the Supreme Court disagreed with that analysis. But it's interesting, and I think perhaps instructive for uh, future cases, to consider when, if ever, recourse to dictionary definitions might properly be had in defamation cases. It seems to me that the opportunity to do so, if it exists at all, uh, must be extremely limited. Because only when such definitions could be said to conduce directly to an understanding of and an insight into the meaning that an ordinary reasonable reader would give to the relevant words, is it legitimate to rely on a dictionary uh, definition? And therefore, I hope you'll understand why I say I find it difficult to conceive how consulting a dictionary would bring that about. It is, as it seems to me, a, a prosaic but self-evident truth that ordinary readers do not look at a dictionary when deciding on the question of what they've read uh, actually means. As I said, we didn't agree that the trial judge had used the dictionary definitions as a check. Uh, by a check, uh, one must assume that the Court of Appeal meant that the judge came to a conclusion as to what meaning the ordinary reasonable reader would have given to the words and then vouched that uh, against the dictionary uh, definition. As a matter of fact, neither in his judgment nor in the exchanges with counsel did the judge use the word check. Moreover, at the start of the trial, as I've said, albeit after he had received submissions as to meaning, he commended to counsel the two possible definitions that he'd found for the word strangle in the Oxford English Dictionary. And that didn't suggest to us that he had striven First, to conclude what the ordinary reasonable reader would have understood the words to mean, and then looked at the dictionary definitions as some sort of verifying mechanism. But even if the judge uh, had uh, used those definitions as a check, it's not easy, at least it's not easy for me to see how the process of checking would uh, in fact operate. Given what I consider to be the unexceptionable proposition that people reading an article or an internet post do not have in mind technical, linguistically precise definitions, it's difficult to see how recourse to the dictionary could fortify a preliminary conclusion as to what the ordinary reasonable reader would make of the statement. 
Be all that it may, uh, however, we concluded that whatever was the judge's purpose in referring to the dictionary definition, it led him into error in the performance of his central rule, which, as I've said too many times already, uh, was deciding what the ordinary, reasonable reader would understand the words to mean. Now, one can sympathise uh, with the judge's decision to have resort to whatever materials might be available in order to undertake what I believe can be an intensely difficult task, <coughs> deciding what the single meaning an ordinary reasonable reader would give to the relevant words. But unfortunately, as it seems to me, by having regard to the dictionary definitions, especially on a preemptive basis, the judge was, we considered, distracted uh, from the context in which the words uh, were uttered. Context. That's a big word in uh, jurisprudence generally. Lord Stain, in the famous case of Daly in, in 2001, uh, said that law, in law, context is everything. Uh, that aphorism has perhaps been somewhat overworked in subsequent cases, uh, but it was unquestionably apt in the Stalker case. The reader of a Facebook post is not to be compared with a contemplative consumer of books, one who ponders over and reflects on the delicious possibilities of every well-turned phrase. As our judgment in the Stocker case observed, the advent of the 21st century has brought with it a new class of reader, the social media user. And that circumstance exemplifies the difficulty faced by the judge in a defamation case dealing with a tweet, a Facebook posting, uh, or the like. It really is no longer open to the judge to reflect on and to adumbrate various theoretically possible, linguistically correct meanings, and then as an intellectual or academic exercise, choose the one that most commends itself to him or her. No, she or he must place herself or himself in the position of the normal Facebook reader. And the judge must then decide what the reasonable reaction of such a reader would be. I acknowledge immediately that to do that, the judge must have some knowledge of, or at least give consideration to, how a social media user deals with a Facebook post. Um, it perhaps won't come as a complete surprise to this audience, that not all judges use Facebook, or Twitter, <laughs> or Instagram, or Snapchat, or the various other social media outlets that are available. I certainly don't use any of them. But these are emphatically a significant, if not indeed predominant, means of social intercourse between younger members, and indeed not so young members, of contemporary society. And it behoves the older members of the judiciary, like me, unfamiliar with this phenomenon, to become acquainted with it, at least. Um, now, as it happens, members of the judiciary much younger than the 
superannuated cohort that I represent <laughs> are clearly au fait with the use of social media. Uh, and we older members of the bench would do well, I believe, to pay close attention uh, to their observations on the topic. In the Stalker case, we find two examples of astute comment by Mr. Justice Warby and Mr. Justice Nicklin. In Monroe and Hopkins in 2017, Mr. Justice Warby uh, said this about tweets, it would be wrong to engage in elaborate analysis of a 140-character tweet. An impressionistic approach is much more fitting and appropriate uh, to the medium. And uh, I refrain from any observation about the um, use of Twitter by people in exalted political positions. <laughs> uh, in any event, in uh, Monnier against Wood in 2018, Mr. Justice Nicklin said, Twitter is a fast-moving medium. People will tend to scroll through messages relatively quickly. And then he said, it's very important when assessing the meaning of a tweet <coughs> not to be over-analytical. Largely, the meaning that an ordinary reasonable reader will receive from a tweet is likely to be more impressionistic than, say, from a newspaper article, which simply in terms of the amount of time that it takes to read allows for at least some element of reflection and consideration. The essential message that is being conveyed by a tweet is likely to be absorbed quickly by the reader. And as I've said, the trial judge in Stocker had identified two possible meanings um, of the allegation that she had made that her husband had tried to strangle her. And he concentrated on the verb to strangle. And as I said, he found the dictionary definitions of strangle were one, killing someone by choking them to death, or two, grasping them by the throat. Now, there certainly didn't seem to be much room for debate uh, on the evidence that Mr. Stalker had, in fact, grasped his wife by the throat. Uh, and so the judge deduced that he had not tried to do so. And since Mrs. Stalker wasn't dead, uh, he concluded that she must have meant that her husband had tried to kill her. No other meaning was conceivable in his uh, estimation. And as a matter of purely logical analysis of the text, that process of deduction is, one may say, impeccable. The view could be taken, therefore, that as a matter of traditional legal reasoning, the judge's approach was beyond reproach. But that is precisely where the dimension of common sense must intrude. Well, on reflection, not so much common sense as recognition of how practical real-life experience should influence, indeed shape, legal outcomes. So perhaps I should amend the title of this talk for a second time and come up with something along the lines, the marriage of legal principle with practical experience to produce just outcomes. Let me try to illustrate how that might be a better title by reference to Stockholm. Uh, 
If the words, he tried to strangle me, are isolated from their context, if they're considered, considered separately uh, from the medium in which they have been uttered, and if one considers that Mrs. Stocker has not in fact been strangled in the sense that she's not been done to death by her husband's attack, but she has had her throat constricted, then one can see how it might be said that the only feasible meaning of the statement, my husband tried to strangle me, was that he tried to kill her. But to approach the question in this way involved, in our view, an impermissible divorce of the bare words from the circumstances in which they were written. In the first place, why would Mrs. Stocker not say that her husband had tried to kill her if that is what she intended uh, to convey? Now, that's not to say, uh, of course, that what the person who makes the alleged defamatory statement intends is conclusive as to its meaning. But what an ordinary, reasonable reader would consider was the meaning of the words is surely not dissociated from what he considers the maker of the statement meant. And to try to bring that home uh, to the Stalker case, if the reader of the Facebook post was mulling over whether the meaning to be given to the statement my husband tried to strangle me was that he had tried to kill her, would he or she not reflect on the fact that she did not say that explicitly? A far greater importance, however, is the circumstance that this was a Facebook post. As we said in our judgment in Stalker, the imperative is to ascertain how a typical, that is, an ordinary, reasonable reader, would interpret the message. That search should reflect the circumstance that this is a casual medium. It is in the nature of conversation rather than carefully chosen expression, and that it is preeminently one in which the reader reads and passes on. Now, ironically, as we said in Stalker, the fact that the ordinary reasonable reader must fasten on a single meaning of the words militates strongly against interpreting the words of Mrs. Stalker's Facebook post as meaning only that Mr. Stalker intended to kill her. And the reason for that is pretty prosaic, but when you think about it, fairly obvious. If one has to choose a single meaning, would it be that he had tried to kill her? In any event, the essential theme of this talk is how the role of the judge is expanded beyond the dis dissection and distillation of legal principle by taking into account the factual circumstances which should contribute to the just re result from disputed uh, litigation. Another and perhaps more appropriate way of expressing that is to ask how a judge should bring into account relevant facts and to, com uh, to combine those with legal principle in order to ensure that the influence, the, applica the application of legal principle, and to fashion and secure a rounded and holistic uh, solution. There can be a tendency to disregard the outcome that a particular approach can bring about, uh, despite compelling factual considerations which might cry out for a different result. 
And that's frequently summed up in the epithet, hard cases make bad law. And it's argued by some uh, that uh, judges should cleave to a pure approach to the law, regardless of the destination which that may lead to. And of course, I recognize and accept the fallibility uh, of uh, allowing oneself to be influenced unduly by what might be seen by some uh, as the just outcome in a case. But it does seem emphatically to me that to forswear consideration of the result that a particular decision will wreak is just as objectionable. Keeping in mind what the inflexible application of principle or precedent will bring provides a sensible check on the continued relevance of such principle or precedent and prompts consideration of whether they require to be modified or disapplied. There will be, of course, occasions where the principle is so well entrenched or the precedent is so strong that departure from them is impossible, even if that leads to an anomalous or even an apparently unjust result. But that consideration, I strongly believe, should not deflect the judge from a clear-sighted recognition and an express acknowledgement that this is the case. And that express acknowledgement should be a feature of her or his judgment, if for no other reason that a firm judicial statement that an incongruous or unfair outcome has ensued might lead to a correction of the position by executive or, or legislative action. Now, it's right, of course, to admit that timious intervention by government doesn't always follow on judicial statements concerning anomalies in the law. But there have been some notable recent examples, particularly as it happens uh, in cases from the uh, jurisdiction from which I am sprung in Northern Ireland. In the case of R on the application of A and B against the Secretary of State for Health in 2017, uh, the Supreme Court held by a majority of three to two uh, that the refusal by the Secretary of State for Health to provide abortion services on the National Health Service uh, for women traveling from Northern Ireland was lawful. Uh, Lady Hale and I dissented from that uh, opinion. Uh, but Lord Wilson, who uh, gave the principal uh, majority judgment in a telling paragraph, paragraph five, uh, captured, I think, uh, the deeply unenviable plight uh, of girls and women from Northern Ireland who had to travel to England to obtain an abortion, uh, and how the fact that many of them experienced a great hardship in raising the necessary funds, how that circumstance increased their plight and predicament. In my judgment, I adverted to the obvious anomaly that a woman from Northern Ireland would be treated on the NHS if she suffered an attack of appendicitis while in England, but she could not receive an abortion. Lady Hale considered that the Secretary of State's policy denied pregnant women from Northern Ireland 
<coughs> the same right to choose what is done with their bodies as is enjoyed by all other pregnant citizens of the United Kingdom. And that, she considered, was inconsistent with the uh, principle of equal equality, equal treatment, uh, which underlies so much of our law. Now, A and B lost their appeal in the, uh, in the Supreme Court, but there was a very swift political reaction to their case. It was taken up in particular by Stella Creasy MP, and within, well, I suppose I would say an improbably short time, the Secretary of State uh, completely reversed his policy. Uh, women who are resident in Northern Ireland are now able to ex access abortion services free of charge in England and Wales. Moreover, uh, financial uh, support for travel and accommodation is also available to those uh, on the lowest incomes. Now, I think it would be silly of me to say that one can be sure that what the justices of the Supreme Court had said was pivotal in achieving that result, but it's surely uh, not fanciful uh, to suggest that the judgments must have had some part to play in the volfas of the Secretary of State, given in particular that he had opposed the challenge to his policy at all three levels uh, of legal challenge. And if that is so, can it not reasonably be claimed as an example of our common sense, or perhaps more aptly, the judicial exposure of the anomalous result that would follow from the application of a technically correct legal approach led to an eminently sensible outcome. The second case was the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission's application, which was decided in 2018. I have to confess that I contribute contributed probably massively to the circumstance that these judgments are the longest on record of, of not only the Supreme Court, but also of the Appellate Committee of the House of Lords. In any event, they, they were handed down just over a year ago on the 8th of June, 2018. And as most of you will probably know, the case involved a challenge to the retention in the law of Northern Ireland, sections 58 and 59 of the Offences Against the Person Act. 1861. Uh, as my estimable judicial assistant, uh, Abigail, who's here this evening, uh, will testify, I can witter on for a, a very long time ab about this case, so I'll try to uh, uh, curtail myself and uh, impose some sort of self-discipline. In any event, sections 58 and 59 severely curtail the circumstances in which abortion may lawfully be performed in Northern Ireland. Five of the seven-member panel were of the clear opinion that the current law there on abortion is not compatible with Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights and Fundamental Freedoms, insofar as it relates to fatal fetal abnormality. The two justices who felt unable to subscribe to that view nevertheless expressly refrain from saying that the law is compatible. Indeed, in his judgment, uh, Lord Reed, with whom Lord Lloyd-Jones agreed, said that it appears from the accounts of individual cases, 
put forward in these proceedings that there is every reason to fear that violation of the Convention rights will occur if the arrangements in place in Northern Ireland remain as they are. So notwithstanding that there were five in favour of the proposition uh, that the law in Northern Ireland was not compatible with uh, Article 8 of the uh, ECHR, the appeal was dismissed. And that was because a majority held that the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, which was the uh, body representing the women that came to uh, the Supreme Court, that they didn't have legal standing to bring the challenge to the 1861 Act. That conclusion was the result of a meticulous, not to say a painstaking analysis of a number of the statutory provisions, principally of the Northern Ireland Act of 1998, uh, which Lord Mance conducted. Uh, they can be found in paragraphs 49 to 73 of his judgment. Again, Lady Hale and I did not agree uh, the Commission was not competent to take the proceedings. And not least of the reasons that we thought that the Human Rights Commission had to have standing was that the Equality and Human Rights Commission for England and Wales does have such standing in respect of this jurisdiction. And I drew attention to that anomaly in a paragraph of my judgment, which is the practical effects of a finding that the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission does not have standing should not be shied away from. These can be considered as a general and at a particular level, at a general and at a particular level. The first is to deny the body institute, instituted for the precise purpose of defending and promoting human rights protection in Northern Ireland of one of the most obvious means of securing that protection. It, it introduces a perplexing and unaccountable discrepancy between the powers available to the EHRC and the NIHRC, that's the two bodies in, in England and Northern Ireland. Most importantly, as this case vividly illustrates, it makes a significant inroad into the practicality and effectiveness of the Article 3 and Article 8 rights of pregnant girls and women in Northern Ireland. Women suffering from the ill effects of a pregnancy where there is fatal fetal abnormality or who are pregnant because of rape or incest do not have the luxury of time within which to seek vindication of their rights. This is preeminently a situation where an independent body such as the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission should be invested with the power to mount a challenge to legislation which violates and which will continue to violate if it remains in force the rights of some members of the female population in Northern Ireland. Now since that judgment was delivered, the government has indicated that it will bring forward legislation to make it unequivocally clear that the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission will have standing to take proceedings such as those involved in this appeal. The key statement was made by the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Karen Bradley, to the Women and Equalities Commission on the 27th of February 2019. And I'll not bother to read that out. But once again, I like to believe that the 
Human Rights Commission case and its subsequent political outcome is at least in part due to the common sense conclusion that the Commission, the obvious agency to take this type of proceedings, that this was plainly an example of the law of unintended consequences and that the government recognising that that was so uh, has taken prompt steps uh, to alter their situation. So I hope that I'm not deluded in my belief that these are examples of cases uh, where rational conclusions as to what the legal outcome should be rather than that impelled by adherence to a literal approach to statutory interpretation has helped to steer the law in a sensible an enlightened direction. Standing back and taking a broad overview of where one's preliminary uh, opinion might lead, it seems to me, is a good strategy in law and in life. And I believe that it led us to the correct conclusion in Stocker. Uh, taking a step outside the legal niceties and the intricacies of the case led us unmistakably to the conclusion that when possibly on an impulse, Mrs. Stocker felt unable to resist sending a Facebook post to her former husband's new partner that he tried to strangle her, the last thing that she intended to convey and the last thing that she should be taken to admit was that he tried to kill her. Ah, my old friend Tony Clark and colleague, when he heard that I was giving yet another talk, used to always intone, always remember that there is no such thing as too short a speech. <laughs> well, I, as usual, I failed to abide that injunction, but thank you very much for listening.